Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to this, it's the Last Week in Brexit podcast. As usual, I'm joined by Alex Davis. Hiya. And also Christian Spence. Hello, happy new year. Now... And usually we actually have a guest, but before I introduce our guest, please remember to follow us on Twitter. Gents, where is our yeah. t- t- Twitter account? Uh, I'm at gmcc underscore Alex. And I'm at gmcc underscore Christian. And of course, I'm at Jay Beardmore. If you want to leave us an iTunes re- uh, review, that would be very, very much appreciated. But we do have a guest, so I will introduce him now. It's Mr. Oliver Norgrove. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. First time in Manchester, yeah? It is my first time in Manchester, yeah. Is it really? Any excuse to get... Feels like a holiday, I won't lie, because I'm in the kind of southeast bubble a bit. (laughs) So when I go, when I travel, it's a pretty good... It's a good excuse to get away, so first time. Now, before we get into anything, um, if anyone finds you on Twitter or some such thing, the first thing they'll notice is you're a vote leave staffer. Yes. Now you're sitting, sit, you're sitting in, in front of me, full head of hair, young man. How mm. does one become a vote leave staffer? <laughs> um, basically, I got the job through impressing in the interview. Um, but uh, I started out really as an activist. Uh, I did a lot of uh, volunteering for vote leave. I did a lot of travelling around the country. A lot of a lot of the groundwork that goes into a campaign. And that's how they kind of began to familiarise themselves with me. And I think that really helped me in terms of getting a job with them, gaining employment. I worked in communications, I worked on uh, social media channels. Um, and that's been really how I, that's, that's how I got my kind of, I guess, head start in the world of Brexit, um, which is a very kind of insular world. So it's, everybody kind of knows everybody. Mm. But um, yeah, so that's really been my journey. I've mixed in very various circles. I used to be... Um, I was originally a um, Eurosceptic in UKIP, but I left shortly after as I wasn't there long. I didn't like it either. Um, and I was, then I was uh, with Vote Leave for a few months, and after that, um, my position kind of on Brexit changed, and I now, f- I'm now, I now advocate a single market Brexit, the so-called Norway option. So it's been a bit of a journey, so I've been lucky to be a part of it, really. Now, at what point do you, did you decide... Okay, the thing that I want to do is go on the UK campaigning mm-hmm. against the EU. To be honest, um, I just I, I supported from the beginning. I supported Brexit because uh, I see it as a way of um, shortening the chain of accountability, just in terms of our, our political democracy. Um, but it, from, as for me personally, I'm very driven, and when I have my mind set on something, I try my best to go out and get it. So I really tried to put myself out there, um, meet as many people as I could, kind of integrate myself in the campaign uh, set up. Um, and that was really how I, I managed to kind of carve out my own little, my own little corner in, in the intellectual and public domain of Brexit. Um, basically, it's a qu- combination of drive and my own kind of principled belief in it. Mm. So you've already said that you've gone from uh, a... A Brexit campaigner and now looking at this Norway style mm. option is that a market change of attitude from where you were to where you are now? Uh, yes, I think I, I was initially a lot harder um, but I was reasoned into the position um, I don't think that it's plausible that the UK will leave in the single market in any meaningful sense 
and you see this coming you, you largely see evidence from this from industry uh, so industry will all, is very kind of adamant from pharmaceuticals to agriculture that they want to remain aligned to the regulatory architecture of the European model um, and also I think that um, the, the beauty of a single market Brexit is that it allows us to leave the EU without becoming in practice a third country so we are, we are allowed to operate within frameworks that we understand, regulatory frameworks, um, administrative systems, these kind of things. Um, so it's a way of ensuring maximum kind of continuity and stability whilst regaining the important parts and pockets of sovereignty and, and our uh, domestic um, uh, cult, um, forget the word uh, I'm looking for, but um, the, it, I, think, I think it is the best way of leaving. Though, though having said that, I don't think there is enough time now to join EFTA. I think we're looking now on a bespoke EEA model, so our own kind of distinct arrangement. Now, that kind of distinct arrangement would be more like a Switzerland arrangement, say, than a Norway arrangement. Well, Switzerland isn't in the single market, um, but it would be similar. Um, the, th the thing about the Swiss model is that it's not a model, and the reason why I say it's a model is that the reason why I said it's not a model, excuse me, is that um, it was essentially cobbled together after its people voted against single market membership in a referendum in December '92, um, and that was a really that shocks the Swiss establishment and shocks the European establishment. So they've spent the last 25 years basically saying, okay, let's let's just put this together and tie this together and this together, and they have now 123 bilateral agreements between them, um, and so that's why I don't really see it as a model. So we're doing the reverse. Mm. Yeah. I'll just open this up to to, to you now. Um, Sorry. No, 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 no absolutely not. Um, <laughs> with that being, I've never heard the Swiss situation being described in that manner before. So, with that in mind, why are we getting so so much um, noise from the EU, which is, almost sounds like it's obstruction, uh, as in this sort of pragmatic approach just isn't open to just isn't open to to the UK. I think part of it is just the EU is, is trying to set out its red lines in all of this as well. You know, so we've talked in previous podcasts about you know their firmness in terms of the visibility before freedoms, that essentially the only two offers on the table for the UK government practically at this stage, um, that they want to say anyways, essentially the after Norway approach or a Canada style approach. The Canada style approach is essentially the only one which fits with Theresa May's red lines as they are now. Um, and also the EU is bruised from that referendum with Switzerland, um, you know, we, we talked about before, because people said, why doesn't the UK go for a Swiss approach, is that the EU will not, even if you hold a gun to their head, go for it. It's a pain in the neck for them. Um, it's also, because actually, it's a pain in the neck for Switzerland, but it's worth it, uh, because it gives them the access. They're not technically in the single market, they're practically in the single market. Yes. Um, so it smooths a lot of hurdles for them. Interesting, of course, they're not in the single market for financial services, uh, which is one of the big outliers. Um, but it's a headache for the EU, it's a headache administrationally. Nobody wants to be going through these uh, these bilaterals, which don't, in the most part, automatically update in the way they do if you're, if you're working through the EU. I mean, isn't that half the problem that we don't want all these things automatically updating should we leave the EU? <coughs> well, that, that comes down to a, a much bigger question, doesn't it? Which is, I mean, Christian just mentioned the two strategies of the EEA kind of route or the Canada route. I think you said it's it's not either or, it's it's kind of which, which direction do we want to go in? and then it comes down to the question of regulatory convergence or regulatory divergence in the future and that's going to be the big debate uh, which, which I think no one has really properly grasped in, in government at this point. I, I describe it as two boxes. The important thing about EEA in Canada is that it's not a spectrum because there's nothing in the middle. The two are conceptually different and they are designed to be conceptually different. Uh, and this can be seen in many ways. So you, um, the the main difference, I would say, the noticeable one between an FDA and the single market is that um, it's basically a change in enforcement and surveillance strategy, so where the checks come in. as they come in in production or they come in at the border? That's basically one of the main differences. Um, so the way I look at it is we have two different boxes. We have a Norway box and we have a Canada box. Uh, and we open the box and that's the one we choose and then we start fighting and kind of wrestling. Ooh. Um, but we can't. There's no spectrum because the, the, there's a complete yeah. gulf. And, and that gulf is large as well. I think we talked previously. You know, people have people within all this seem to have in mind a spectrum. What yes. you say, sort of three boxes of you know WTO on one side, Canada in the middle, single market membership EA or continued EU membership on the far side. But everyone's got the mind that kind of those three boxes are equally spaced. 
Mm. Um, and they're not. No. The, 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 the difference between WTO and Canada is actually relatively small. Yes. But the gap between single market membership and Canada is enormous. Mm -hmm. you know, single markets are rare things, very, very rare. Things. And our supply chains are very, very sensitive to any kind of change like that. Absolutely. And it is changing. We, we talk often here about regulation. When companies complain about regulation, usually what they're complaining about, if you dig under the surface of shouting, is the rate of change. So mm. We talk about the velocity of regulation being a, being a major issue. Rather than regulation. You mean too much coming in at one time? Exactly. How quickly it changes. It's, a, it's essentially customising yourself to it. Once it's been in place for a year or two, the systems are designed, supply chains have relocated, everything does what it does, everybody's now happy. So when people come back, it's one of the things we've had, we've had to push hard back against kind of the hard leave approach. Mm. It's this narrative that, oh, well, you know, most of the world isn't in the EU, therefore we can be fine. We can, you know, it's okay for the UK to be out. Of course it's okay for us to be out, but the difference is we're currently in. Mm. The rest of the world hasn't been in, and therefore their supply chains are located on the basis that they're yeah. not in. But actually all of our industrial supply chains across Europe are entirely located and set up. And many the of them we are in a single market. And many of them run in a just in time fashion. Yeah, so exactly. companies will import mm -hmm. uh, Nissan is a good example. Yeah. I think they have a factory in Swindon and they will That's import right. part yeah. and their production line is literally an hour long. So their report, their parts will come in and they will not stand there for very long and they will go in towards um, building the, the products and off the cars go like it's very, very quick. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that mentions of Nissan in Sunderland have gone up 20-fold post-Brexit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so shall, we, shall we move this on to uh, more, recent, more, more recent events? Yeah. Um, a couple of things which uh, have interested me in, uh, in, in the news lately. A, there's been a, a reshuffle. There, there was. Not a yeah. particularly interesting one. In, in, well, I, th I think the political like, outfall is probably more interesting than the actual shuffle itself. Yes, <laughs> I, tend, I tend to agree with that. Another one which I'd just like everyone's opinion is, on is Nigel Farage's meeting with, with, Michel, with Michel Bonnier. Yeah, I saw a lot of people getting outraged that this was happening, but Nigel Farage <laughs> is an MEP, and MEPs regularly meet with that... officials from the UK. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, 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 got, it got framed in a, in a kind of weird... It may have been the way that he built it up himself through his yeah, own social media. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you must have seen the social media video that he did mm. and all the replies. I didn't actually. It's worth taking some time to go through, <laughs> to go through the replies. Um, he, uh, he basically asked people what questions he would like, uh, they, they would like him to pose to Barnier Barnier and... Uh, some of the replies were pretty funny. I recommend you go through them. Oh no, I, I, I love a reshuffle. Reshuffle to me is like transfer deadline day. It's the best. I love, I love a reshuffle. I, I don't. I don't think it was the best reshuffle we've seen, but they're all they're always interesting. How Grayling kept his job is to me a mystery. Uh, why Justin Greening was uh, extricated from government, I don't understand that either. Uh, Boris Johnson. How, how was she extricated? Did, did she not? Did she not resign? So, so she, she resigned. She, yeah. Sorry, she, uh, I should have said from her position. So she was moved to another department to. Yeah. Work, work and pensions, I think, and she That's rejected right. it. Uh, she Which is the current climate. I mean, DWP is a bit of a poison chalice at the minute with, uh, with Universal Credit rollout mm. um, going not as well as it might. I mean, one interesting one for me was Jeremy Hunt. I know this has nothing to do with, do with Brexit, but I'm going to mention it um, anyway. Talking about a poison chalice, why would you want to carry on as health secretary? Well, well his, his own statement said this is, this is a personal mission. He doesn't want to be seen to be dizzy. Going down with the sinking ship, I think, was the line he used in his letter to Theresa May. Really? Uh, I think he said, he, he said going down with the ship, and then yeah. Corbyn pounced on that today and said, if he's, you know, yeah. if he does, that, does that mean it's down, a sinking yeah. ship? Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, um, you know, he'd said, you know, we've got doctors and nurses under huge stress in the uh, in you know the, the last crisis before the NHS caves in, which the NHS has had every single year. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, a, it, it's uh, annual crisis season, of course, isn't it? The one, um, the one position I was glad to see remain the same was uh, Michael Gove as the DEFRA secretary. He's had a blinder over six months. Yeah. He's, 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 well, I mean, of course, he's a, he's, he's a, he's a marmite politician. Yeah, I like him personally. Views, yeah. uh, um, and I think actually, most people, it's for most people, it's probably the policies he's pursued. Um, but I think generally, in terms of a cabinet minister who has actually got on and achieved things. Um, since 2010, he's got to rank up there highly, you know, disagree with the policies themselves. Yeah, pesticides, yeah. The ability to actually design, shape a policy, and then deliver it rapidly. I mean, certainly, I mean, around half the actual Brexit policy announcements we've had in the past few months are, have all come from death. Mm. Well, I know you, Oliver, were a big fan of the farming announcement around the subsidies, yeah. um, mm. which I, I thought didn't get a lot of press coverage, to be honest. No, I think it's because it's a very kind of technical, boring issue. Mm -hmm. But it, it, I think Gove is in a an interesting spot because the common agricultural policy is widely condemned across the referendum spectrum. 
Uh, it's one of those systems which is, in, in my view, structurally flawed. Um, subsidies are based upon wealth and not based upon productivity or output. And what we've seen in the UK is large segments of our uh, greenery has been completely destroyed just to be replaced by basically uh, useless farmland. Um, and what Gove is saying is we should bring back the wildflower fields that we've lost almost all of over the last kind of 50, 60 years. Uh, and I think these are very kind of... Um, I th- what, what, he's, what he's showing is that Brexit can in some ways be an opportunity to, to, in, to instill in our political climate some inf- refreshing, interesting ideas. And that's one of the reasons why I think he's doing a very good job uh, in his role at the moment. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm of the same opi- opinion of both, as both of you here, which is I find him a remarkably effective minister. Mm. Uh, yes. in, well, in both his briefs. He was in education as well. Only justice he wasn't, but he wasn't there long. He's a, he's a very nice guy. And he's a very, um, he did, uh, back of Oatleaf, he occasionally he would come in and give us all kind of rallying speeches. And he's one of those politicians, one of those great orators where he just, the words kind of roll off of his tongue and he kind of captures you. Uh, and it's really, he's really interesting to watch. He's one, he's one of those politicians that really kind of inspires me. Uh, and I'm not saying I agree with everything he, everything he does, but he's just one of those politicians you have to kind of listen to because he's quite, I just find him interesting. Yeah. I guess whilst whilst we're on 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 the subject then, and as Brexit is a very small world, as you said yourself, you must have encountered Nigel Farage. New, new I, I, yeah, I've come across. I've met him probably three or four times. But I wouldn't say he knows me though. I, just in, in brief, in passing. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of his. Uh, I used to be a massive fan of his. Uh, I used to be kind of. Uh, very uh, in- intrigued by him and interested in him, but not so much anymore. Why, why do you ask about Farage? Because <laughs> I, mean, I wasn't hostile question. <laughs> I, was just, I was just wondering. I'd, I'd like to know how how the Brexit side is now polarised post post vote. Oh yeah, the divisions have been, been really pronounced. Um, so um, you still have the hardliners. I I call them headbangers, but that's just me being. Uh, annoying. Um, so you, you have you have the you have the Leave types who think that a no deal is in some way feasible, plausible, acceptable. Those are the people we need to ignore because they're wrong. Uh, you have the soft softies like me, um, and then you have a very subtle divide between people like me and people like Dan Hannon, who also supports EFTA, but he supports the Swiss type, which is very similar. Um, but it, mainly, I think the consensus is that we aren't doing the negotiations are not going well. Uh, we need to get out control of our borders, have an F- have a free trade agreement. Uh, but the there there is there are still these visible splits in the Leave side, and they've always been there. There's it's not it's not new. There have always been different proposals for what Brexit should look look like. Uh, the, the Norway option, for instance, was first proposed back in 2004 by a member of the European Research Group in Brussels, and then Richard North, Dr. Richard North, proposed his own kind of take on the Norway option, um, and that that kind of took off, and we had that in Flexit as well. Um, so it, there, there have always been, and, and, and these camps can get very hostile with one another, because um, it, it is about the future of the country. It's about the future of, it's about the direction we head in as a country. So it is actually very important, I think. Um, one of the things which came out of the Farage meeting was immigration, and he said that it hasn't been. Well, he said from his discussion, it sounds like it has not been addressed at all. How much truth is it is, is in that statement? Addressing what way? Within, um, within the Brexit negotiations. Uh, immigration policy has not been has not been touched at all yet. Um, that will be part of the framework for future discussions. So we're probably we're probably another seven or eight months away from knowing what uh, what the policy might look like. No, all we've covered is is citizens' rights, existing to EU citizens, E twenty seven citizens here and their families and dependents, uh, and vice versa. That's all we've got through. So. All we know is, what well, we know on migration, what we've known since whenever it was, Theresa May or David Cameron wanted the immigration redu- net immigration uh, reducing to the tens of thousands. Um, that's literally all we know. That's still, that's still policy uh, at this stage. As to how we will control it, we have, we have no real idea. Migration bill to come. Uh, to come what, what surprised me was how surprised Mr. Farage was about the fact that it hadn't been discussed. Because <laughs> yes. we know the sequencing. <laughs> yeah, it's yes. already public. What was he expecting? Some kind of massive alteration to it. And, and also it's not relevant. It's no, not relevant at the moment. It's relevant soon, but so, not yet. And that's been the challenge all the way through this process, is, is lots of people who should be better informed than they are shouting about things that aren't pertinent at the time they're shouting at <laughs> so, so I, I actually do have a little bit of sympathy with this comment and the reason I do is because throughout doing this, d- doing this podcast you would say things like oh well you know, nothing's been decided or you know, um, 
people, uh, people are not talking about X, Y, and Z. And then what has become apparent is that everyone is talking about every, um, everything all of the time. So I am actually surprised that, that there was nothing that you could glean from his meeting with Michel Barnier. Well, because the, because the answer is it, it depends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, it depends. We're entering a set of negotiations. That's the answer to every Brexit question. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We're, we're entering a set of negotiations where nothing is known. The likely outcome is, for me, I would say at this stage, the likely outcome is the UK will essentially take whatever it is the EU offers. Because um, we said from the beginning, I think one of the big flaws in the in the Theresa May government strategy, particularly since the Lancaster House speech, um, is this idea that you could sort of just wing it and we could really hammer our way through. Um, which is, so, which is kind of what has gone on so far. It is, yeah. We just hammer our way through and then capitulate at the last minute and present it as a, as a negotiation success for, for David Davis. Where, you know, we've said this a lot, yeah. you know, we should have been much more open at the beginning and acknowledging that we do have a very weak set of cards in this negotiation. Um, that's not necessarily a problem if you acknowledge it and you set your expectations with, with what can happen. But migration, it's a trait, you know, I use this phrase so often in my job, you know, economics 101, first thing you learn, everything is a trade-off. <coughs> there's no such thing as a free lunch. For your migration policy, okay, you want to restrict migration from free movement, then the UK government, you need to decide which bits of access, of preferential access, to the EU market you now don't want. Yeah. And at the moment, it appears that there is no because they come as a package. Because they come as a package. That's it. Mm. Um, so yes, there will be some room for maneuvering. The EU is, and I think we've also got this. The EU is. It will not give away on its fundamental principles, but it is very, very good at its negotiations with both internally with its member states and around the world at managing to politically fudge things. It's a great expertise yeah. in managing to present something as a what's actually going to be. It won't collapse on the big stuff, but it can present it. So the Brexit bill, you know, the divorce bill, horrible phrase. Um, you know, they've managed to spin it. The media's caught on its 40 billion. We all know practically it's 58 billion because we'll pay some of it up front so it doesn't look like it's going to be larger than it is. They're very happy to do this kind of political spin. Um, so, but you know, the one conversation the UK government has had, there's two conversations that are connected that they've not had from me. One is they've not really set out what it is they want to achieve. I think this is the single biggest failing of their whole process. We don't know why we're doing this other than, quote, will of the people, unquote. Mm. So what do you want to achieve? Basically, characterising the whole thing has been a complete lack of clarity. Yeah, exactly. And then secondly, this will involve trade-offs. So what are, where are all of the different aspects of our relationship with the EU ranked? Which bits are you prepared to give up? to be able to win something here on the other side. And we've no clarity on any of those things. And at the moment, the UK government is pretending it can have all of the bits that it wants and get rid of all the bits that it can't. I think the, the, thing, the thing is with going back to people like Farage as well is that they are, they are never going to be satisfied. Um, and and I, think that, I think that goes more widely, and I think I've said this before, is that I, I don't think that anyone is really ever going to be satisfied with how Brexit turns out. Because, I mean, there's such diversity of, of thought within the Leave side um, you know, Remainers are always going to be unhappy if Brexit happens. I don't think that it's possible to deliver a Brexit which actually pleases anyone entirely. The thing about Farage is that his entire life and polit- political yeah. side is, has been devoted to it, so even if he's internally satisfied, he can't be publicly, mm-hmm. yeah. because he will only himself look like he's undermining himself, yeah, if yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah. I just think he'll move on to the next project. I mean, it used to be all about... But what, it, his next, his next this project. Lack of <laughs> yeah, he, he will, he will intoxicate his next project. Yeah, but if you think about where he was, which is kind of, you know, Thatcher plus, and then look at him, look at him where he is now, which is you know almost this Trumpian fan, uh, you know, pop, uh, populist and anti-immigration. I'm not saying he's not always held those views, but the views that he is most prominent with have certainly changed. So he'll just he'll, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll write a book and he'll be a, a talk show host on a radio or on radio or something <laughs> like that. I, I think he's very good at that, to, to be fair. Um, <laughs> and his book will go on about how weak the establishment were in standing up to Brussels, no, despite the it. fact that that's not the paradigm the negotiations actually sit in at well, all. Just well, because we've got an, we've got an outside opinion here, I, I'll just throw two questions to sure. you, which we started with uh, well about five about five minutes ago, which is. Um, how, have you, how do you rate the outcome of the negotiations so far? And uh, what was what was the other one that we spoke, spoke about? It, it's escaped me. Go, 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 go with that one. <laughs> how do I think of the negotiations so far? Um, oh. uh, I think that the phase one agreement 
um, essentially pretty much confirms that soft Brexit is inevitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, and I'm referring specifically to the Irish border, which and the Northern Ireland issue is now pretty much guiding Brexit policy. Uh, I'm not, in terms of my general views, I'm not, I'm not impressed. Like I'm not impressed with the um, lack of clarity. I'm not impressed with the lack of, um, um, what's the word? Just the general understanding and getting to grips with what becoming a third country means. The general cakeism, I dislike. I really despise it because it all it does is it puts up this enormous goal that we can never achieve, and it'll make the whole thing look like a failure. Um, and I think the we've been very slow. Um, our ministers are completely disorganised. The civil service is completely suffocated by this. Um, I, I, I will support it. I support it very strongly. There's nobody who supports Brexit more than I do, uh, and I get a lot of grief from hard leavers who think I'm anti-Brexit because I criticise the process, which is obviously I have my own mind. Um, but my general feeling is that I, I'm pretty pessimistic about where it's going, and I think that phase two. One of the things I advocate at the moment is an extension to the Article 50 period because I think that Phase Two will be Absolutely, even yeah. trickier than Phase One. Yeah. If we think that if we think that the island discussion ended with Phase One, it's not even started. No, and that's one thing we talked about. You know, yeah. on, the, on the Northern Ireland border, um, all you've, all they've got to do is kick the single most difficult can in this entire process further down the road. Yeah. that problem has not been resolved. Um, one thing I will say though is that there is enormous political will to solve it. There is. On one, and, then, and there's an interesting article in, on the CapEx website at the moment about how Ireland can be our um, best friend during the Phase 2 negotiations. And it, it, it may seem like we're opposed, we're, we're fighting against them. I mean, we kind of are in that they are the EU. But one thing I would say is that Ireland is also determined for there not to be a border. Yes. So it's not like there's no cooperation on that front. And that will help, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Uh, I have remembered the second point, which is something which we talk about most, uh, most weeks. How strong do you think the UK is in its negotiating position? Because I, I think you refer to it most most weeks that you, you believe it's a relatively weak hand. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that broadly. I think we're relatively weak. Though I think if you look at the initial demands of Phase One, 100 billion. Um, more um, continued and more extensive jurisdiction of the ECJ. We did actually manage to water those down. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's not like one side completely capitulates and the other side gets exactly what it wants. Yeah. There has been watering down. So I, I don't think I, I think you're broadly correct. And we are we are on the weaker side, and we're on the weaker side because basically it's not true that they need us more than we need them. Yeah. That's basically the the, the, the the crux of the issue. Um, we and they say, oh well, half of our exports go there, so they need us. Well, I mean, we're, we're talking about proportion here. 15% of their trade comes here. For us, it's much higher. Um, and I think we're, in, in, in those terms, much uh, the, the odds are stacked against us. So I, I do broadly agree that we're in a weak position. Yeah. And I think my frustration with that is, mm. is of course, we had a weak hand because we had it technically more than 128th uh, of the year, practically. Um, but it's the fact that it's the fact that the I mean, even before the Lancaster House speech, the Tuesday's conference speech last October, we suddenly introduced red lines. Um, really, from realistically, from nowhere, this this pretense. Although you talked about that, that imagining we can have our cake and eat it, yeah. and, you know, it's, it just sets you up for failure. Exactly. You know, no politician. They don't realise it. Ever goes out. The businessman, you would never do it. We're going to go do X to get this. There's simply no way I can ever mm. do that. So you go into failure. All of that essentially made our hand weaker. Mm. That's the frustration. So it's we start off the weak hand, but actually, you know, like business negotiations. If you if you're honest and open about what you can achieve. It's not necessarily exactly, uh, yeah, and and also being constructive about it will help progress things in just in principle. Yeah. Uh, one of the core kind of um, arguments I have with hard levers is that I mean, recently I wrote a blog post. I do a lot, quite a lot of blogging, completely littering people's news feeds with it uh, about why we there are, why there's no such thing as regulatory sovereignty. Yeah. And there are basically two reasons. One is. Um, it, the, the globalised um, trends, basically lots of these regulations come from global bodies and we would adopt them anyway. Yeah. Another point is that we face what is effectively a, a binary choice between the American model and the European architecture. Uh, and the hard levers who had a go at me for writing this were saying, oh, I was just basically, uh, I was undermining Brexit, I was saying that um, I'm making Brexit out to be harder than it actually is, I'm uh, pessimistic, uh, I'm not a true Brexiteer is another one they use. But what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is exactly what you just said. If you if you set up a goal, you can actually score in. You can actually work yeah. with it, and you can actually progress. But they don't. They do not grasp this, and it's so frustrating for me. No, and the hardness is great. The, 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 how difficult this is. I think it's a great. I always come back to David Arnold Green. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
that you write on the FT, legal writer of the FT, he always said it's actually the single biggest failure, I like this, that government has made in all this, is to pretend that this is easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it's actually that you are entering realistically the single most I, I, challenging regulatory discussion mm. that any major country has gone through in 50 years or more. I to would, pretend that is simple is mm, incredibly yeah. dangerous. Naive. I, I would add on to that that I think the single biggest problem, the core problem with our attitude towards negotiations has been that we, we have taught ourselves over quite a few years now that it's in the interests of the EU to offer us a preferential deal, yeah. when it isn't because that undermines the integrity, functional and political yeah. integrity of the single market and that's what we've completely avoided and, and just completely ignored. Yeah, well I think there's, I think there's a further answer, like there is, there's that you know, the EU has its own internal obligations within its own treaty. The EU also has a web of international obligations. Mm. Um, so, you know, starting to do, you know, crack deals with us about, oh, we can throw services in. Well, point for you, you have to go back to the global negotiating table with a number of countries if you start to do that. Because MFN, we talked about in a couple of podcasts. MFN Interestingly, though, the, um, the EU does have a right of reservation on Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the case of services, um, they have a right of reservation on one, and one of the grounds is that um, they can offer preferential treatment to another country if that country begins from the point of regulatory equivalence, mm-hmm. which we do. Yeah. That, that, that being said, I'm not arguing that we would get perfect on financial services and FDA because yeah, yes. we're talking about, again, trade-offs, like he said. Yeah. Was there not an announcement today or yesterday that they wouldn't give us passporting financial services? No, and, and that, that was um, before Christmas, I believe, passports and stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, it wasn't in <laughs> the, the last Barnier speech. And that's, that's not a surprise, because yeah. they've not said you can't have it. They've said... We're not really interested in opening up full-blown passporting, but I'm sure we can crack a deal mm-hmm. on the basis of, uh, of equivalence. Yeah. Now, of course, that actually gives firms in London everything they need except long-term surety, because equivalence can be withdrawn unilaterally by the EU at any point. Yeah. Um, now, that's the bit. That's where you know the London firms were always fearful of going for an equivalence model rather than. Uh, actual single market participation because essentially you don't have long This can probably that. bring us on to a, the next point is that I think the government is slowly starting to realise that there are a whole bunch of sectors and I think that bunch is increasing by the day that basically want to stay completely aligned with the EU's architecture. Um, and so we saw the announcement that the EU Commission had sent out memos to companies in 15 sectors um, warning them about the implications of the UK becoming a third country. So it was these were companies who rely on a, rely on a UK license to operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, and we've got a call out to talk to any talk to any businesses which have had that memo because we want to we want to see it and we want them to talk to us about what they think. Um, but this is something which which the government hasn't really grasped yet, as we saw in the well. I mean, <laughs> we can move on to the letter that was leaked that David Davis sent to uh, Theresa May um, about the fact that. David Davis is apparently very surprised and terrified. It was quite a passive-aggressive letter mm. that yes. the EU are actually making preparations. The most and ironic, talking, ironic thing. And talking to yeah. businesses yeah. about the fact that they're preparing for no deal and what that might mean, might mean for them. Um, and then an EU Commission spokesperson said that we're very, <laughs> we're very surprised that the UK is surprised that we're preparing for a scenario that the UK government itself announced. It's, it's, it's pretty... Mm. <laughs> I've got to say, I, I, it's, it's, it, ma- it makes me want to... Put, put my fingers to my lips like an Italian chef. <laughs> see, I can actually, um, I can actually see the logic in both sides, but that 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 statement by the EU, I don't know what it is. It's that sort of rules-based statement. It kind of, feels like I'm having an argument with my wife. It's just, it, it's so cutting. Um, it kind of gets me. I think no, no I, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with this one bit. <laughs> So yeah, uh, yeah I th- I you see it slightly differently there. Yeah, but I think this is—I think what the EU is doing is important, and for me, is is one of the roles we've been calling on government to pull its finger out. And again, because government is pretending about where things might land. Um, you know, the conversations we have with with companies. You know, what are you preparing? Are you starting to have conversations? Can we help you in any way? The general thing that comes back is, oh well, we don't know. We don't know where it's going to land. Therefore, we're not doing any preparation. That makes some sense mm-hmm. to a certain degree. So the big international traders, those with integrated supply chains are well down the planning route. Um, for those who export less uh, less frequently, they're not. But the question we then have is, well, have you done your worst-case scenario? Have you, got, have you got your plans for no deal? Do you know what that means? Um, for most companies, the answer is very, very clearly no, but at this stage, they still don't know that. Uh, and the EU government, the EU is now doing, you know, the European Commission is moving to do what the UK government should do, which is actually, this is what you need to think about. 
Yeah. I think the, the thing about preparing for a no deal is that it has to be uh, reflected on both sides of the ports, both sides mm. of the channel, both yeah. in Amsterdam and in Hull. It yeah. needs to be a binary system because if you have preparation, complete preparation, on one side. If it's not if it's not reciprocated, yeah. that traffic doesn't go anywhere. Exactly. So there's no point. The border always has exactly. Two sides. So they yeah. need to. So in some ways, in some ways, the UK complaining about secrecy has is is in a sense correct in that it needs to be a, a binary kind of open um, cooperative procedure. But I, I can understand, but there's still a tremendous amount of irony in, in the letter. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I've just got a quick, quick, one, quick one for Oliver. Um, now that the Brexit process is underway, and, I mean, I, I've, I'll put my hand up, I had no idea the Brexit process was even half as com- 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 complicated as it is until I met Alex and Christian. And now uh, I think I've only got a small idea of how complex <laughs> it actually is. Did you guys on the com- campaign understand how hard it was and if you did how did you go about trying to package that message to the voters well actually um have you read tim shipman's all out war no i'd recommend it yeah. first <laughs> of all yeah. as a precursor <laughs> read it yeah. um dominic cummings his answer to this was um because everything is so complicated simplify it simplify it all and squash it down into into messages which are digestible because if you if you talk to the public um, as a campaign if you talk to the public about rules of origin accumulation regulation you get absolutely nowhere because these things are difficult to mm. I, I think I broadly understand them but obviously not completely nobody does mm-hmm. um, but you, you, you need to find ways of, um, of essentially ensuring that your messages are digestible uh, in terms of um, were, there, were there experts on the campaign there were a couple yeah um, there were a couple of EU law experts our research team were very clever um, Richard Howell and Oliver Lewis were very, um, very kind of um, well um, I forget the word but they, 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 they knew what they were talking about in terms of EU law uh, Dominic Cummings is very good at um, understanding the way government works he was a civil servant for many years and he, knew, he understands how government needs to kind of organise itself in terms of prepar- preparing for Brexit um, so there were, there were pockets of expertise in in, 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 in areas, but no, but no person can cover it all. It's just, it's just, it's, it's just complete. I, I describe it as a bottomless pit. When yeah. you, when you learn about trade and you learn about what the EU does for us and its influence, for good or for bad, it's a completely bottomless pit. And it's a very frustrating process trying to learn it all. In my opinion, anyway. Mm, yeah. um, that's 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 at least my 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 take on it. Yeah. So, I guess the follow-on from that would be. Um, You've got the people write, um, writing the message. You've got um, some experts in um, within your team. Yeah. Do you think it was your message that swung the votes for people to say Doncaster or Hell, or was it something else? Um, I put it down to three factors. Uh, one was our message. Um, control and money are very important to people, and they're digestible, and they are powerful. Uh, number two, the immigration... Um, the issue of immigration was simply unavoidable and it was a big thing and it does touch I don't know about Manchester because I think Manchester is very Remain if I'm correct City, City yeah. Manchester yeah. 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 Um, I don't I'm know about surrounding areas Greater Manchester might not be there's, there's, I think there's three boroughs that I'd leave mm. um, so, out of the ten so I'm guessing yeah. Oldham or somewhere like that yeah. 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 So, yeah, so the regions I think cared about things like immigration um, and the third factor was um, the Remain campaign, in my opinion, and I'm not just saying this because I'm biased, but I think the Remain campaign was genuinely awful. Mm. I think it was genuinely a bad campaign. And what I think we saw in, from the Remain side of things was a very bad strategic operation. Um, and that can be seen in a number, in a number of ways. One of the most prominent um, mistakes they made and kept making was they kept fronting people who the public just don't like. They kept <laughs> doing it and they weren't learning from it. Uh, so the people they were putting on our cam- cameras and our TV screens were uh, either threatening them with, with um, um, pu- punishing budgets or they were Gordon Brown, who nobody likes, Tony Blair, who nobody likes, uh, the comedian, what's his name, with the beret, who nobody, nobody likes. likes. Yeah, 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 yeah people who just, they, they just weren't you know, gripping people. So I think these were the kind of three combination of factors which led to, I mean, history is, can be written in many different ways. But I think that we have, we played our part, and I think to some some people, control plus money plus money for the NHS was a way of tying economics with um, the kind of uh, quality of life argument, and and I just think that yeah, there were there were so many ways you can approach this, and I think that 
we did we did contribute and we did persuade voters and I think that if it, if it were not for our designation and Farage had led the campaign I think that we would have looked at defeat I think we would have looked looked at maybe 45% and they would have won by 55% and it's, it's ultimately it's about it, it's just it's very kind of um, uh, it's difficult to break down um, but I think there were just so many factors involved in it it's hard to explain in one kind of sentence how it all came together yes do, 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 do you think any of the ways in which Vote Leave approached campaigning have made Brexit more difficult to deliver? Um, I mean, I, I, mean, I think it, it's, fa- it's fairly obvious that the government has... I mean, Theresa May was a Remain... Mm, uh, was yes. on the Remain side, and, and after coming to power, seemed to you know, adopt some of the, the policies of, of the yeah. hardest Brexiteers. Yeah, see, I mean, our, our general arguments, I don't think, compromise negotiations in that we can, in principle, have control of our borders, we can have control of our trade policy. We can end the payments eventually. Um, and some, I can't remember what all of our messages were now. Um, in terms of our messages, um, I don't think they're very compromising. I genuinely think that lots of the mistakes came after the referendum. So, for instance, um, during the first of the holding of the election was bizarre, completely bizarre. In hindsight, initially I supported it because I saw the logic in it, but then I realised that it just didn't work. But also before that, another crucial mistake was made in that before Article 50 was invoked, there was no scoping in the way of understanding your opponents. There was nothing in the way of scoping. And that right there was a massive opportunity missed. So I think that many of the... I'm not just saying this. I've had my kind of fallouts and disagreements with Vote Leave people, but I genuinely think it's largely government, largely government, and general attitude that's actually the problem, and yeah. not not actually the campaign. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I think one, one of the main arguments is that we should. Well, I mean, you, you just said it, is that we shouldn't have invoked Article Fifty as quickly as we did, because yep. yeah. we had absolutely no idea what we were getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I completely agree that's a huge mistake. And you, you also mentioned earlier on that you support the idea of uh, extending the Article yes. Fifty period, which I, I completely do as well. As an alternative um, to a transition, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we've spoken about that transition, the transition on this podcast before. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure our views on that dissimilar to yours in that we're essentially putting ourselves in the worst position possible I thought, I, I, for I two it, years. I thought it was an, it was an implementation phase. Uh, well, Call it what you will. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, but the state is quite... The state is quite essentially, it, it is, for all the people who said, Norway is simply unacceptable because we will have to take rules we have no influence over, put to one side the yeah. almost totally inaccurate that statement um, the transition period as it currently stands will be literally the worst possible Norway style position you can imagine <laughs> of in everything which absolutely no say absolutely it's, um, it's, it's a bonkers position to see as, to see that as being a positive thing just yeah. extend article 50 the only thing is it's temporary but even then it's still it's still a, it's still a good two years of obeying by everything abiding by everything but not having any kind of voting rights mm-hmm. it's, a, it's it looks like vassalage which is which sounds like an extreme term but that, that well, is really what it is it is it is the UK voluntarily putting itself in, in, a, in the weakest possible mm-hmm. position I mean if you wanted to you know we're already seeing some of those moves in, in from both Germany and France particularly around there are some significant mm-hmm. opportunities for us here um, you know as those two nations in terms of grabbing uh, grabbing business stakes from, from the UK that two-year period is the perfect point mm-hmm. at which you might want to, you know, which the EU might want to start looking very closely at financial services regulation, positions of Eurozone clearing, and all this kind of stuff. Because actually, all of a sudden, you've not got the UK's voice at the table. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's a very weird way. And that's a weird. That's, weird that's that's that would be weird for us uh, and our staff there and all the pe- all the diplomats we have over there because mm-hmm. the UK actually did have a strong voice in the EU. Absolutely. And I never I never argued that we had no say there. It would have been point we would have left if we had no say there. It doesn't make sense to argue that. So to go from a position where you're actually one of the strongest countries, um, just just from a just from a say perspective, um, to go to go from that position of quite a, a relatively significant amount of say to no say is a complete culture shock to people there I think yeah. and that's also worth considering I think another thing which perhaps people forget is that the position that we've asked to be put in for this tra- transition implementation period isn't a position which currently exists and will have to be negotiated and figured out on, in a legal basis and yeah. all that's going to take loads and loads of time and everyone knows that we're in a massive time constraint anyway to get any of this done mm. I mean, I mean, I mean, the, the EU. So the EU is good at political fudging on big issues. Yes. This has got. You know, there are there are a couple of enormous hurdles here. The EU needs to yeah. somehow handle the WTO. Yeah. To say actually, we need to give a third country 
full and blown access to our markets without transgressing any of the WTO rules. That's not necessarily. Easy. The, the, I mean, the, the reason why we, we constantly speak about the Norway option, I mean, you know, going back months on this podcast, was that. It's as much. It's as close as you can get to an off-the-shelf option. It, you know, we kind of know what it is. You know, it's configurable. You know, it, it get it gets loads of problems off the table. Um, you know, mm-hmm. or at least Eliminates goes me. goes partially to solving most of the problems that we have um, in one swoop, and and that completely got avoided and got thrown out. And now we have this other one, which is to extend Article Fifty, which once again takes loads of the things which we need to negotiate off the table, solves the problem of the the transition period. You know, gives us way more time to do everything else. And the government has also completely and avoided the, that option. The, the, ME, the MEP issue, when I make this point, um, sometimes I get commentators saying to me, oh, but what about the MEP issue? We're going to have to elect new MEPs and they'll have to out, out last their term. And, but actually, I don't see that as being a big issue um, because if you look at... Uh, basically, it wouldn't be a provision in the Article fi- in the treaty and in Article 50 if it was just completely... Um, if it were completely kind of quashed by this whole MEP, sticky MEP situation. <laughs> so I, d- I don't see it as being a problem, but I agree with what you say. And, and one's the last bit, I'm sorry, John, the tra- I think it's the transition bit is the other bit that I still, I'm still worried about. People say, oh, great, you know, we get the transition to the end of 2020, which is the, the Barney and the EU position, or you extend it Article 50. Is the thing is that all that, 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 all that does still is boot a cliff edge nearly two years further down the road. Yeah. Until the UK government has worked out what it is it wants, well, you, you can just keep kicking this can as, as and, long as you like. And by, all you do is mm. you, replace, you replace the 29th of March 2019 um, with the 31st of December 2020, but you still have the problem. Mm, the cliff edge yeah. is still there. The destination unknown, yeah. yeah. So when you talk about what it wants, are you, are you really looking at the moment about... Into our, our relationship as far as the regulatory architecture as in do we want EEA, an EEA based relationship or something else like Ukraine or I, is I, that I, what you I mean? Think, I don't think it's into I wouldn't want to put it into box at this stage I think what the because what we're missing from our point of view from the UK government is even a high level that high level vision paper that says what the kind of relationship we are looking for is this because or even not is this but it's the kind of relationship we want will be shaped by these particular five or six things. Mm. Actually, we are keen to ensure you know, relatively functionless borders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does all that add up to? But, and this is, of course, the problem. This goes all the way back to the start. Is you don't know why we're doing this. No. Are you you offer as always the EA option. Look, actually, you get over the hurdle of ticking the referendum box. So even though people will, you know, people will still be furious that. You're still in the single market, and you've still got freedom to people. Mm-hmm. You're still accepting rules. My salary free movement as well, by the yeah. way. Mm-hmm. On the after court, all of that. But fundamentally, you can turn around and say, the box you asked us to do, leave the EU, we have done. Mm-hmm. You can argue around the edges, but you have a very clear political message in that. And then broadly, from the business and the sheer economic point of view, you're, with the exception of agriculture, fisheries, and a couple of them, you're basically status quo. And then over the next 10 or 15 years, you suddenly work out actually what it is you want to do with mm. all these parents you suddenly found. Um, and when you've got around to not even answering the questions, but working out what the questions you want to ask <laughs> yeah. are, then you can start to do that. But this idea that we're trying to answer, we're trying to, it's all can't before the horse. Mm. We're trying to work out what it is, what the structures should be, whilst well, not knowing why we're doing this. Are you all Remainers, by the way? No, I, I have had one. Well, you, you, you can speak. Well, yeah. you're, you're, you're I have no opinion. I'm not allowed. One. You're, I'm you're not also not allowed. One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not on this podcast anyway. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't realise. Sorry. Yeah, right. I can have an opinion, and I was a leader. Okay. Mm-hmm. And on balance, I still am. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No. We're, it's just because we're, we're a representative membership organisation. So our members were 55-35 in the very last poll we did uh, before. 55 remain. Okay. 35 leave. Uh, it was that was the narrowest it was out of all the polling. It started yes. off at mm. sixty-five thirty, mm-hmm. uh, I think. So it strengthened towards leave uh, as the referendum went on. Um, there was only one subset of our membership that was a majority vote for leave, and that was exporting companies who do not trade in the EU. Yeah, that was the only sector that came as, a, as a majority. Leave. And maybe just on that point, one of, one of my proudest uh, things, which I like to tell people, is that. I used to go around for the chamber doing Brexit presentations, you know, multiple times a week for a, a period of months, uh, leading up to the referendum and shortly afterwards. And I have been told by people that they are very upset uh, because I'm too pro Remain and that I'm too pro Leave. <laughs> but I've delivered exactly the same presentation. Well, you know you've won. You know you've done well. Then. That's the idea. That well, and also that doesn't that does that not reflect how completely 
partisan and toxic and poisonous the whole debate has become. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Well, and the Jersey debates that we have now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Uh, just one last current affairs thing before uh, before we wrap, wrap it up. Who saw the Juncker speech? Uh, basically warning all the other European countries that they're, they're going to have to stump up once the UK leaves the EU. Yes, yeah, the budget conflict, of course, because the UK, uh, the UK will leave a lot of holes uh, in the EU, but I suppose the, the most obviously tangible one uh, is about 16 billion euros, I think, is the, is the expectation of the forecast a year. How's, how's Germany taken that? Yeah, well, that's, that's going to be interesting. I'm not the uh, specific German. Don't forget, Germany doesn't have a government at the moment, which might be helpful. If, if, <laughs> I tell you what, if, if France end up paying more, that's a success of Brexit, as, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, and I think Juncker also said, you know, I don't like the idea of cuts, so basically you're all going to stumble. Absolutely, cutting the budget is absolutely unthinkable. Um, uh, therefore, fill it. That's it. So, yeah, it's, um, it'll work out. Yeah, I'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see who 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 does actually foot this bill. Well, don't, well, don't forget, there's only five net contributors. Yes, and the, um, we're one of them. Mm, Germany, uh, France, Germany, Germany Italy, than us, yeah. Austria, and Holland. Is it? Uh, Netherlands is just a net contributor, but the, the numbers. I mean, the other thing as well, actually, the UK and the German contributions um, are, are individually larger than the sum mm. of the rest. Um, and the front, the French. The reason why I mentioned the French before is because they demand a lot of contributions in terms of the common agricultural policy, Cap and always and always have done. For them, yeah. yeah. So if anything, I, that, I, I mean, think it's huge. I mean, many people listening might not know. It's at thirty-five percent. I think of the EU's total spending budget is, is common agricultural policy. And what's yeah. the rest of it? Pensions. <laughs> Pensions. You are a cynical. Invest, <laughs> in, in, in investment <laughs> projects, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Cap is a very big deal. I'm very big deal for. Absolutely. Mm. Excellent. Right, well, um, thank you all very much for uh, contributing. All of it, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, and also, don't stay down in the southeast bubble too. For, uh, too. <laughs> I feel that Doncaster and Hell and all those other places may well benefit from your visit. <laughs> and follow me on Twitter, at Oliver Norgrove, if you'd like to. <laughs> if you'd like to. Thank you. Excellent. All right, well, um, uh, the normal three of us will be back. Um, next week, I hope, unless there's anything in your diaries, which means that we no, can't. I think we should be here at the uh, yeah, usual time, usual place. Excellent. Right. So until next week, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.